Blog Talk Radio. This is BC Radio Live with Philip and Eric. Live online at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. Aloha. The chat room is now open. The video feed is now running and we are live. It is January 9th, 2008. Tonight on the show, a trio of guests. First, Sal Marinello has written about steroids and baseball for BC Magazine and for the New York Post, so we'll talk about the latest with Sal. Then, John Sobel of StageMage.com writes theater reviews for BC Magazine and recently reviewed The Pirates of Penzance by the New York Gilbert and Sullivan Players. Finally, Kenny Vance, the Dylan of Dua, will join us to talk about his latest album, Countdown to Love. We're going to open the phone lines tonight at 646-595-3195 or stop by the chat room at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. I am Philip Wynn, Chief Geek at BC Magazine, and I am joined tonight by Lisa McKay, Executive Editor of BC Magazine. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Philip. How are you tonight? Oh, I'm doing well. I had a little bit more time before the show than I did uh, exactly one month ago when my 7 o'clock event ran right up to my 9 o'clock event, <laughs> so I'm pretty happy. Good. Uh, we're also joined tonight by Eric Olson, founder and publisher of BC Magazine. Hi, Eric. Hello, Philip. Hi, Lisa. How are you? Good. It's a, it's a big, big day on the radio. Uh, we're excited because, of course, we've got all the cool stuff that Philip already mentioned going on on this show, but man, the network is really shaping up, the BC Radio Network, or, or radio channel, uh, as, as the case may be, on Blog Talk Radio, and we are excited to be here. Lots of shows going on. We've had some new shows launching recently, and we're preparing for yet another. Of course, Glosslip Radio with Don Olson airs every Sunday night at 10 p.m. Eastern, and Treehouse Force, <laughs> Treehouse, that's funny, Treehouse Fort, which is our sports show, is now twice a week, every Monday and Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern. And uh, what else do we have going on? We have the Cyber Mixtape Show, although I just read that Laurent is having to take a week off because he just moved and he neglected to uh, <laughs> to get the Internet connection set up. So we're, we're sadly have a little break from Cyber Mix tape show, but that typically airs twice a week and is really hopping along. Laurent always has great guests on and talks about music and controversial subjects. And we have the big tent roundtable talking politics, and this is certainly the political season, every Thursday at 5 p.m. Eastern, and the B-Sides concept album with Josh Hathaway every Thursday at 10 p.m. all times Eastern. And for all of that information and the Schedules for the latest shows and who's going to be doing what, simply go to blogcritics.org slash bcradio. And I'd like to add one more thing. We were asked to provide an entertainment, a daily entertainment news, what's going on, gossip, etc., etc., segment to Sean Daly's daily, no pun intended, blog talk radio show. So that is on every single day, every weekday. And now, what did, what did you talk about today, Eric? My understanding is you, you've already gotten off to a, a hugely wonderful start. Well, Dawn did a great job. Uh, she, she was in on Monday and Tuesday, and then uh, my debut was today. And we had a 
quite interesting game show uh, testing internet knowledge with none other than Miss America. So yeah, it was crazy. She is visiting the uh, Semantic slash Norton booth at CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, which is going on right now. The biggest trade show, I believe, in the world in Las Vegas right now. And they're uh, they're doing a booth, so they uh, agreed to call in, and we did a live version of the Cyber Smackdown game show on the air today. So it was really a lot of fun. So please tune in to that show daily for either Don or I, and I'm sure we'll add some other blog critics checking in, but we're doing an entertainment segment on Sean Daly's daily show. That, that really goes back to, we used to work with Sean on, as we've often said, another network before uh, he discovered Blog Talk Radio, before we joined the Blog Talk Radio family. Uh, we showed up once a week or so, so this is a, a great way to continue that relationship. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it really is. And it was, in fact, running into Sean, who, you know, we knew him, we hadn't met him in person yet, but it was running into him literally across the aisle from us uh, at the Blog Talk Radio booth at Blog World in Las Vegas, same place as CES, although <laughs> Blog World was somewhat more modest in scope, but it was great nonetheless. And yeah, that was just one more thing that came at directly out of Blog World was our association with Blog Talk Radio. So that was really quite an event for us. Now you mentioned CES a couple times, and that's the uh, Consumer Electronics Show going on in Las Vegas right now. I've been, I've been following it somewhat avidly because I am, in fact, a big geek. And uh, one of the things that I think is interesting is that um, nothing exciting seems to be coming out of CES. I, I don't know, I've personally been more excited by Apple's announcements during CES, completely unrelated to CES, than I have been by anything actually at CES. And that includes a 150-inch television. I saw that, a plasma. Boy, that was, they didn't even announce the price on it yet. <laughs> I, I think the last one was... The last biggest one was a hundred inches, and that one was seventy thousand. So yeah, this this one's going to be probably more than my house, certainly more than a couple of my my cars. You know, I think Mark <laughs> Cuban has the hundred inch TV. Wow, and, you know that's pretty big. Well, there's there's been a lot of hoopla going on at CES. It just seems like everybody, I don't know, it, it's gotten bigger and bigger. I I went to the show years and years ago when it wasn't nearly as big as it is now. Um, and, and it just doesn't seem like there's a lot of excitement. Everybody's copying everybody else. Everybody has more or less the same things. And, you know, come a month from now, nobody will remember most of it. I think at it, it shows, trade shows, gatherings uh, of this sort in general, I think you do reach a point of diminishing returns in terms of size. You know, we've been hearing for quite a while now that South by Southwest has got too big. You know, I mean... Once you reach a certain point, and, and CMJ, the, the music show in New York, you know, once you get to a certain size, there's no way that one person can take it all in. And, and I think that should be perhaps some sort of measurement. You know, is it physically possible for one person to take in the whole show in, in the length of time that it's open? If not, then you know, maybe they should consider scaling it back or making it longer you know, doing something to, to make the scale a little more human again because it is easy to get overwhelmed. I think, you know, we're talking about the show itself. I've been, you know, semi-following what's been going on. I haven't heard anything super exciting either. I think the sentimental issue was Bill Gates doing his annual, uh, you know, state of, state of his brain address, and this is his last one. He will be retiring 
from uh, day-to-day running of Microsoft, and he'll be sucked up into his philanthropic empire. And I, I think sentimentally a lot of people, you know, now that he's finally gone, a lot of people are at least somewhat sad to see him go. It's certainly the end of an era. And, sure. You know, I think his image, the more he does with the philanthropy and the kind of money we're talking about, I mean, he'll just be distributing, you know, literally billions and billions of dollars. Uh, I think in the long run, you know, a hundred years from now, he'll 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 come off as Albert Schweitzer. You know, I, I don't think we'll have quite the the uh, captain of industry, the pirate of industry that he's been <laughs> per, that you know has been presented for so long. I think he'll he'll come out of it looking pretty good, you know, historically, just because he will have so much money to give away, and, and I'm sure it'll end up doing all kinds of good. You know, I mean, almost how could it not? Right. But, you know, I'm a little sorry to see Bill go. He's been such a figurehead, uh, you know, of, of just the whole inter- the the uh, computer-slash-internet revolution over the last 20-some years. Despite my loyalty to all things Apple, I have to say, I, I have a bit of a warm spot in my heart for Bill, uh, primarily, as you, as you mentioned, because of the philanthropic efforts. And uh, I was actually impressed by some of the video footage I saw of his goodbye. It was, it was, it was nice to see. Well, let's go to the phone. We've got someone on the line from area code 908, and I'm actually hoping that that is Sal Marinello. Oh, I bet it is. Yes, it is. Oh, very good. Well, Sal has uh, been writing for Blog Critics for quite some time, and I uh, I certainly enjoyed your pieces, Sal, on the Healthy Skeptic series. has been great. Thank you. He spent some time debunking various uh, myths and just bizarre stuff that people do to try to you know, pump themselves up or, you know, lose weight and things like that. And he, he brings a, a sensible scientific view to it all, which I think is quite refreshing. And I think that's really what has caught the attention of, of some others now as you're writing about the steroid problem in baseball. I know that you've, been re- you've written now for the New York Post. Yep. And that you're going to be on Fox News Radio tomorrow. Is that right? Fox uh, Sports Radio? Yeah, Fox Sports Radio, yeah, in the morning. Their national morning show I'll be on uh, in the morning talking uh, – about um, the issue as it, as it re- uh, relates to baseball, and uh, basically a lot of it has to do with not only the article in the Post, but the the articles that I've been posting on Blog Critics for for quite a while. So um, very good. Yeah. So that that'll be tomorrow morning, Thursday morning at eight twenty a.m. on XM channel uh, one forty two. So that's correct. It's uh, that's eight twenty Eastern, and I believe it uh, it replays again later in the day. Uh, so. Um, the people in the West Coast, I think, uh, can get it. Uh, I believe it'll be ten twenty or eleven twenty again. It'll be on their time in the morning. So uh, very good. Um, yeah. Now I know your mo- your most recent article on Blog Critics went through in, in quite some detail some of Roger Clemens' recent claims. Uh, he yeah. talked to sixty Minutes, and what what are his claims in defense of the accusations now against him? Well, I mean, he he seems to be. Uh, basing the the, the major uh, uh, opposition to what his trainer said, Brian McNamee, that he indeed did get shots from McNamee, but the shots were not steroids or growth hormone or anything illegal or banned, but uh, lidocaine um, and vitamin B12, which are, you know, a lot less uh, severe and obviously not illegal. Um, The biggest problem, I think you could, just on just at first glance with that defense, is that... um, uh, lidocaine is a, is a kind of mild painkiller, but uh, when it's injected to be um, 
to be effective, especially for a guy like Clemens, you figure an athlete and he's using it for specific joint uh, pain and, and relief for that pain, has to be injected into a joint and, and or the connective tissue of the, uh, that surrounds the joint, which is a pretty uh, dicey proposition. And I have a, a real hard time believing that a guy of uh, Clemens' stature and uh, access to the best medical care, athletic trainers, uh, and so on and so forth through the Yankees and both uh, privately would would let a uh, um, not even a really legitimate kind of strength coach inject him uh, with something so sensitive. So, you know, that's his really his first um, line of uh, objection. But you know, looking at it, it's kind of flimsy it, it, just from that standpoint. Hi, Sal. How are you? Great to talk to you, Eric. Here, Eric. Nice to talk to you too. One, wanted to mention just to, as an aside here that Sal is really one of our, our great success stories. You know, for those writers listening in, and just shows what can be done. You know, he has an area of expertise, an area that he's really interested in, something he pursues in real life too. As a your coach, strength yep. coach, and a team coach, and a, a trainer, right? Yep. Well, uh, yeah. What you said, Eric, I agree, and I think it's also a tribute to. Uh, you know, being able, to, first of all, to, um, you know, to respond to something. This whole chain of events where I've become kind of noticed, you know, because people put their email addresses on articles, and I've always been a letter to the editors kind of guy, and when people started to put their email addresses on, um, I would, you know, send them a little note or a comment or so on and so forth, and eventually you'll hit on that person that responds. And I think it taken a step further with what blog critics offers, you know, the writer is a chance to express themselves, but also, you know, in a way that you know people are going to be reading it, and it personally it's forced me to get better at what I do, because not only do you guys edit it, but I know thousands, potentially thousands of people could read it, and I want to be darn sure I'm going to say the right thing if I'm going to ultimately put it up there with my name and then be able to defend it. So it's a tribute to uh, the Internet, but specifically to the to blog critics, I believe. So Well, thanks, and you've, you've taken advantage of it. That, I mean, that's the key. You've really run with it, and you've made all these great connections with with ESPN and New York Post, and, and uh, you know, it just it really shows, you know, what can be gained from working with the site. Now, back to Clemens. What, yeah. what I don't get is, is, now, are there, do they have test results from him, or is this purely based on the accusations of the trainer? The, this is based on the ac- accusations of the trainers and, and uh, the trainer, and there's two things to keep in mind. There are tests, there are screens, uh, screening processes for steroids. Um, there are not, there is no no way, uh, particularly uh, through a urine test, to, to test for growth hormone. So right there, you know, uh, you know, if you really want to stick to your guns and say I've never tested positive, well, that's that's kind of obvious because there's no test that can be that can detect the <laughs> it's, use. It's so a tautology. You're, yeah, you're kind of real safe there with that. Um, and and you know, the other thing about not testing for steroids, there's first of all the big problem I have. Part of the Mitchell report um, mentioned that. They know on several occasions someone uh, that uh, someone from the union had tipped off players as to what were supposed to be random and unannounced drug tests. So I think if you if, if you view that uh, that that fact that maybe players were being tipped off as to when they were going to be tested, that the whole process that the that Major League Baseball used to um, to try to police the drug use can be looked at. You know kind of with the jaundiced eye, you know, and you figure they may have had the best interests of the union to, to tip off their big-name players. So that, that's part of it. 
Um, the other part of it is steroids can be manipulated chemically, you know, pretty easily these days in, in uh, private labs and individual, you know, the whole Balco Labs uh, scandal was basically a small local lab that did this. Um, so that, you know, the steroids would not be recognized by a, um, a screen because the screening test for steroids looks at a very specific particular uh, profile of drugs. So if things are slightly altered, um, and they can be altered in such a way to make them effective still, but then to avoid detection. So, you know, the longer I look at the issue, the less I'm impressed by the fact that there are no positive drug tests um, for certain people. What are your thoughts on the Mitchell Report in general, and what do you think is going to happen going forward? Um, well, I think, you know what, I think you're seeing with this whole thing, um, blow, I think, personally blowing up in Clemens's face. Uh, first of all, I think, you know, the, the Mitchell Report, they were kind of in a no-win situation from a standpoint they, I mean, Major League Baseball. I think, you know, it's one of those things people would criticize them for spending $20 million and what's it getting them. Um, for the most part, uh, I think what it did was it, it forced the issue further uh, to the surface. And, and I'll backtrack a half a step and say, Part of the problem with the whole story is it's been it's not, it has not been covered properly from the beginning by the media because you know sports writers in particular just didn't understand the combination of what the drugs did and what training for sport is. So early on, when guys were getting bigger and stronger, the cover story was it was the training. Whereas people in the profession, unfortunately, not people that are high profile, but people like myself um, who were kind of railing against. Um, what was going on, recognized something was, was going, you know, was not right and something wasn't kosher. So the that, no, that no amount of training does what you were saying. Right. And, and you know what the bottom line, the rule of thumb is to, you, don't, you don't get stronger for something that's rigor, uh, a rigorous or, um, you know, that's a long, like a long haul, like a season by beating yourself up more, which is what a lot of these players were doing. They were, you know, undergoing these crazy regimens of eight and ten weeks to get ready for spring training and you know baseball is a long season and these guys not only were doing that but were doing that later in their career and then we're continuing it during the season so and then being effective also on the field so all those things were red flags from my standpoint from early on um, but the, I think the Mitchell report basically now is, is if you read the latest that just crossed the wire on this this con, the, the hearing Congress is going to have, they've postponed the hearing from sometime next week to sometime in the middle of February because now they're really planning a serious um, uh, deliberation of this matter. They're going to be more of an investigation rather than kind of a light not a light, but kind of a discussion of what was going on. And I think a lot of that now is because of what Clemens did with um, the taping the phone call and with making this big, big public display of his, um, of his innocence. And I think, that, I think that's what ultimately the Mitchell report was kind of a stepping stone to something bigger that's going to continue in the form of this congressional hearing. You know, one of the things that I thought was interesting is the the phone call that Clemens taped. So, so Roger Clemens calls the, uh, I believe it was the trainer that yep. he's saying, Brian McNamee, McNamee, right. uh, who injected him with what he says is vitamin B12 and, and lidocaine. Yeah. Uh, he, he called him and taped the whole conversation. And what I found really interesting about that, as uh, you know, Clemens played the tape, was that, I don't know, if, if I were a guy trying to tape someone to admit that they lied about me, I might ask them things like, hey, why did you lie about me? Yeah. Or, or, you know, something that might in any way push them toward the truth. But, right. well, I mean, at least the part of the tape that Clemens played is nothing like that. Well, and then I think what, 
what got was going to get him into more trouble is apparently, and I, I wasn't sure. I read two different accounts, and I wasn't clear on it. There was either more to that conversation, or there was an earlier conversation that he taped. And during that conversation, McNamee was a little more um, firm in his assertion that he didn't lie and he told the truth. Um, so I think that's interesting. And again, I think that's part of what Congress is going to look at. But I also agree with you in that. Um, and also, I felt if I was the kind of guy who was forced to bury my friend to save myself and I really had not uh, told the truth and I really did you know, put my friend in a tough place, I would want to make sure he understood I did it. Uh, and I would have said it in that conversation. I would have, you know, I would think a guy like McNamee, if he was forced into the corner, would have admitted to that and said something to that effect. But I didn't hear any of that in, in any of those conversations. Right. Like, Clement, you know, Roger, what, what can I do? I had no choice, that right. sort of thing. Yep. But instead it was, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, sorry about causing you pain, but what, <laughs> what can I do, really? Yeah, and I really think what kills, well, ultimately what kills, well, there's two other big things that kill him. The obvious one is Pettit admitted that what Andy Pettit, the other Yankee pitcher who was one of Clemens' best friends, as a matter of fact, when Clemens left the Yankees to go to Houston, Pettit decided not to re-sign with the Yankees and signed with Houston, and they were connected at the hip. Pettit uh, admitted to McNamee, uh, to, to McNamee's claims that he did use growth hormone. But I think the second thing that really I haven't heard asked yet, and tomorrow if I get the chance on Fox I'm going to bring it up, that uh, – you know, McNamee got in some trouble uh, with an alleged rape when he was with the Yankees back in 2001, which ultimately led to him being fired and involved in that incident with this woman at a, a hotel pool where the Yankees were staying um, was the date rape drug GHB, which this girl had been overdosed with. So that kind of never went to court, but that was enough for the Yankees to fire him. Well, that was, I believe, in 2001. Clemens has continued, continued to work with him up and through this season. So a big question there is why would you continue to work with a guy like that when um, he was fired for something of that nature in such, in, in such a sensitive area and uh, had continued to work with him. And, and there are several quotes that I could pull up, and there's, there's in, they, they are in articles I've written on blog critics where Clemens has mentioned him uh, positively and also has just made comments to the effect that I will, you know, I'll do anything and listen to any of my advisors if there's anything I can do to get an edge and keep up with these young guys. So, you know, he's got Right. So what one possibility is of course that he's hanging on to McNamee because McNamee's the the line to the illegal substance as he's admitted and yeah. uh, that that that's exactly why he keeps in touch with him, but uh if if he's claiming that's not the case, he's going to have to stretch pretty hard I think to come up with a reasonable explanation for that relationship. Yes, especially there's been like the last couple of days these little items obviously that are being pushed forward from his camp about that particular incident that he got in trouble. And that, you know, that would make sense. You know, you could say, well, geez, that happened in 2001 and Roger found out about it and fired him. And if these allegations had occurred before that, um, you know, you could see, well, he made a clean break. The guy might have been dirty. He found out about it and got him out of the house. But, you know, he continued to work with him. And also, if you read the Mitchell report, too, there's, um, you know, mentions that kind of everybody else that was associated with baseball had a feeling or knew what uh, what McNamee was all about. It was apparently only Clemens is the guy who doesn't know what he may have been or what he was involved with. So that's another problem for him, I believe. And, and the, the final problem is right in front of your face between he and Bonds. People just don't have those kind of endings to their careers. Correct. I mean, it just doesn't happen. You don't yep. play at that level at 45 years old, you know, early 40s, in, into your mid-40s, 
and and maintain that edge, you know. And and in Bond's case, I mean, it's so obvious when it yeah. ended because the numbers dropped off yep. so and, precipitously. And, and, and you know, that's funny too. You mentioned that, and Goose Gossage was um, nominated to the Hall of Fame. And locally, where I am, I'm in the New York, New Jersey area. The sports writers here have really been pushing for him. And, and in the last couple of weeks, there's been items um, where he's been asked his opinion, and and he said, you know, we we had seen. Um, something that never happened before, and it was guys at the end, not only the second half of their career, but the ends of their career, putting up numbers that no one had put up before, ever, at any age. And, you know, kind of like you knew what was going on, and, and yet no one, you know, everyone was afraid to pull the trigger and say it or didn't want to say it. And, and like, Or you, you know, hope it's a miracle. Can it happen it, to me? You do. You do. <laughs> I'm and 49. Like, I, want, yeah. I want the majors. You know, and, and, it, you know, if Mark you, McGuire can suddenly expand for no apparent reason, why can't I? Right. Right, and it was explained away, and you know, so many people as well. That's just the conditioning, and there's so many advances, and and people are are not comfortable enough to challenge that. Just like anybody who's told anything that they're not com- in a field they're not comfortable, you know, like okay, well, I don't know enough to 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 raise a question, but you know, ultimately, that's what what's really happened there. And uh, and and you know, it's funny the um, the excuses have gotten a little um, less plausible over the years at least because there's been enough of these instances that you know they've, they've been forced to become more creative it was at first it was the tainted supplement uh story it was like oh i bought this at gnc but it was tainted then it was uh, i didn't really ever know knowingly put anything in my body and now it's like well i got injected but i didn't know what it was in- i was injected with or i bought it but i never used it which is a great one that's what several of the guys in the mitchell report when they fessed up they said, I bought it, but I never used it type of thing. So This I, is a really fascinating and, of course, huge, huge topic because it obviously transcends baseball. It transcends professional sports and goes all the way down to what I've heard, the junior high level even. And so, I mean, we'd love to have you come on and, and talk about it more. Just a yep. uh, quick, quick wrap-up. I mean, I'm just really interested. What are your thoughts on kind of the global side of it? I mean, is this something that we can ever really get a handle on? Well, uh, are there better and worse ways of addressing it? Are, you well, know, have some sports good, done better with others? It's a great question because as science and the technology progresses, there's going to be drug, drug treatments, gene therapy, other kinds of substances, and there's a whole laundry list of things I'm, I've looked into that are not only being used experimentally but are in the hands of, like I would say, average folk. And, you know, Bodybuilding is not a sport, but bodybuilding is an activity in which um, drugs are been they're, – they're the field that pushes the use of these drugs. And if you go on message boards uh, and bulletin boards that handle bodybuilding, there's these amazing next-generation substances that are out there and being used. And there's also um, acknowledgement that there's this next-generation um, – and as early as 2002, I have notes of a meeting of the, the top um, – you know. Um, chemists and um, guys who were involved with genetic enhancement of muscle talking about the ethical dilemmas that are going to be faced. So it's important, I'll wrap up and say, we have to keep talking about this because people have to understand what these different substances do and come to grips with what can and cannot be allowed in sport because it's going to come to a point where I think these lines are blurred. Um, and I, and I think understanding it is separate from saying I'm for it or against it. I think you have to understand what's going on first before you can say it's good or bad. It's not like a steroid anymore. We're getting steroids or Stone Age. Um, HGH is kind of modern age, and then there's substances that are coming from 
next that are space age, and we have to kind of come to grips with the issue before we can say what's right and what's wrong. Are these new substances less harmful to the individual? Um, well, there's, at this point, there's less less to, less known about them, so it's hard to say. One quick thing I'll say interesting about growth hormone, the one use that it is legally um, uh, used for by the FDA is for a small stature in children. So the, I believe the argument that it's uh, potentially long-term injurious to use HGH is probably not that great because the FDA is already saying it's safe to use for children, and, and those are people who are going to have, kids are going to have to use it long-term. I know um, so, several young, younger people who have it, and it's a long-term proposition. Same thing if you're a, a, um, an, an adult and have low levels, you can use it, and it can be used safely. So um, HGH is, at this point, safe, and side effects come with every drug. But with these new drugs, there's not enough study done yet um, to know. And that's what's interesting, too. People are so willing to use these things with really on a wing and a prayer with no idea of what's going to happen to them. But it's all, they're all growth factors. It's all revolving around creating new muscle tissue through growth hormone. And some of these new substances are not now injecting growth hormone, but it's uh, a substance that's going to allow your body to just produce more growth hormone. So you're not putting growth hormone in. They're called pro, uh, growth hormone precursors or uh, growth hormone stimulators. So it's getting crazy. It's amazing. Oh, what, just one last thing on the subject. That one of the things that, that I picked up on from the, the Mitchell Report and, and probably earlier than that, but what, what a lot of people don't realize is it's not just or even necessarily primarily bulk and size that, that say, for example, baseball players in particular are looking for. What they're looking for is the recovery time, right? Absolutely. Recovery yeah. from injury. That's what sets them apart. And, and you know, if again – Understanding how to use it isn't promoting its use, but if you look at what growth hormone does for a, a guy who's already a pro baseball player, they, ideally you won't have to change anything in your training. You're just going to be you're already good enough. Now what you're trying to do, like you say, is, is recover and be good enough and not have that natural drop-off that comes from the rigors of the sport. You know, you don't have to go out there and then beat yourself up in your workout, which a lot of these guys are doing. They're not a lot of these people don't still don't understand what they have their on you know have on their hands. They don't know how to use it, which is the other amazing thing about this issue. Well, Sal Marinello is a National Strength and Conditioning Association certified strength and conditioning specialist and certified personal trainer, a USA weightlifting certified coach, and a whole mess of other things. <laughs> You can uh, you can check out his articles at BC Magazine. Uh, you can find him in uh, the New York Post, and he will, as we mentioned, be on Fox Sports Radio XM Channel 142 Thursday morning at 8.20 a.m. Eastern, uh, repeating a few hours later uh, for the benefit of folks on the West Coast. Thank you very much, Sal. Thanks for having me. I look forward to it. Anything you need, give me a yell. Thanks, Sal. All right, Great. All right guys. Well, next up, we have uh, John Sobel on the line from New York. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. John, long time no speak. Yeah, I know. Uh, God, what was it, hours ago? Yeah, a couple of <laughs> Well, John has been writing. Uh, John actually started a feature called Stage Mage. You can, you can check it out at stagemage.com. What that is is a collection of theater reviews, both from New York, Los Angeles, and, and London, and various other places. Not all by John, but John has certainly taken the lead on this. Uh, and uh, it's, I think it's, it's been delightful to have that bit of culture. Yeah, yeah, the, the section has really taken off lately. 
Um, I originally thought, uh, well, I thought, you know, we'd be lucky if there would be somebody interested in writing about theater from London and maybe somebody from, and myself from New York. Uh, turns out uh, there's, uh, there's, there's L.A., there's uh, various places in between, although those are the three big cities at the moment that we have covered, uh, New York, London, and Los Angeles. Now, just today you published a review of a performance of the Pirates of Penzance, which really caught my eye because it's uh, kind of mint, actually. It's one of my favorites. Well, it was, yeah, and, and it was a really great production. Uh, and, and the cool thing is um, most, most uh, theatrical sections in newspapers or magazines or wherever you look are very local, uh, which makes sense because a play is only playing at one place at a time. Uh, but, but this... But by doing it on Blog Critics, uh, which is a national and international readership, you can have people from all over the world noticing that there's a production of, uh, of the Pirates of Penzance that's really great in New York, and maybe they can't come see it in New York, but it'll remind them about theater in their own town or, or, or about the fact that, oh, yeah, I used to love Gilbert and Sullivan when I was in high school. Maybe I should go check out some new theater. Right. We won't necessarily see the New York Gilbert and Sullivan players as you did, but I know in my case it's prompted me that I, I think uh, tomorrow night with my kids I'm going to pop in the Pirates of Penzance DVD I have and, <laughs> and sit there again. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's the, if it's the one I put on the, on the site. There's a whole bunch of recordings of that. Uh, both the, uh, there's DVDs, there's, there's CDs of... Uh, in fact, um, there was I remember a, when Linda Ronstadt... There was a Linda Ronstadt Kevin Klein version, which I actually saw years ago. Uh, that was before they had really learned how to um, how to amplify live theater in a big in a big uh, in a big place. So it just sounded awful. Uh, Linda, no, <laughs> Linda I know that, I know that Eric and I aren't exactly in in the cultural cultural meccas you've described. Not that you know I want to I want to downplay or, or speak down to uh, anywhere in Ohio or Texas. But being in New York City does give you a, a bit of an opportunity to see more live theater. I think than most of the rest of us. And and Lisa. Uh, you're being awfully quiet, but you certainly have a chance to to catch that sort of thing more often than than Eric or I do. How, when was the last time you were at a live show? Um, let's see. I think the last time I was at a live show was actually in New York. Um, we went in, uh, I think, not last year, but the year before, to see Spamalot. Oh, lovely. That's a good one. Yes, which was fantastic. Yeah. Um, but actually, where I am in the New Haven area is um, we, we've got great local theater here, um, partly because of our proximity to the city and partly because of Yale University. So this area really supports... Uh, also, New Haven is famous for Broadway tryouts. That's absolutely true. One of, um, one of the big places that Broadway yeah. shows play before they move to Broadway. That used to be it used to be an, an absolute fact that they would come here first and and get all the bugs worked out and then and then head into the city. Um, what we get now mostly here um, in terms of things like musical theater are mostly touring companies at this point. Um, but we've got really great resident theater. We've got the Long Wharf Theater, and we've got uh, the Yale Repertory Theater. Sure. And um, and of course I'm you know we're 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 within driving distance of the city so there's all of that to take advantage of too, and Boston so yeah this is a pretty good place to be, if if you're interested in that kind of thing. And there there now, is there is theater all over the country too. There sure. Is. You don't even have to be in it. You can be in a rural area, and chances are there'll be a summer stock or something going on. Yeah, I've I've been uh, occasionally very surprised at the high quality of, of 
even amateur theater, which I've seen. Absolutely. Mind-blowing. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen Shakespeare in the Park they do every year here in Dallas, and I, I have to admit I've been quite surprised at the uh, high quality of the productions that they've put on most years as well. What I, what I notice uh, here in the city, um, in New York, there are a huge number of little theater companies. Uh, there's, you know, there's Broadway, obviously, which is, I don't know, 20-odd theaters, and there's Off-Broadway, which is, I don't know, a few hundred theater companies maybe, uh, and there's Off-Off-Broadway, which is anything smaller than 100 seats, um, and there's also some, I don't know, some other definitions of what's Off-Broadway and what's Off-Off-Broadway. It's kind of kind of arcane, but the number of theater companies, I mean, I'm, I'm on the list of uh, only some of the, the theatrical uh, promoters and publicists in, in New York City, and even with just that, that part of it, uh, there are far too many shows than I could ever possibly hope to see, even if that's all I did. So what's cool is there's I mean, a couple of other uh, writers in New York that have uh, started to do some of the reviewing, and and post their their stuff and uh, it's it's even even with that I mean you, you could you could spend all your time going to the theater in New York and never see even a small fraction of everything John part of what interests me about sort of your ent- entree into this is you know you're a musician you have a musical background you were primarily a music writer for us yeah. and then um, you know you just kind of ventured uh, seemingly semi-accidentally because you know you're in new york and that kind of thing in in the theater and um you know all of a sudden that that you saw that as as a as a real area of interest i'm I'm interested in what was that development you know kind of what caught your eye how did that all come about well i i was always somewhat interested in theater i was in the pit orchestra of a few plays when i was in school and all and so forth uh but i i never you know pursued that in, in any professional way, uh, just kind of interested, and I always liked the theater. Uh, but it just kind of happened when, it really happened when I think uh, when Blog Critics itself started getting on the list of a few theatrical promoters in New York, and I just kind of said, hey, why don't I try reviewing a play? It was just as simple as that. It just popped into my head. This play looks interesting. Why don't I see if I can go see it and review it? And I contacted the promoter. And it just started from there. And then once you're on the list of that promoter, uh, somehow the other promoters get your name. And uh, so, you know, uh, it, just, it just spirals from there. So then you end up getting, uh, you, you start getting a little bit of a reputation as, first of all, not even necessarily someone who's a great writer or a great reviewer, but just someone who's dependable and will actually show up and write a review of the show when you give them when you reserve uh, the free tickets for them. So, showing uh, up is half the battle. You know, exactly. Showing up is half the battle. And once you show up, and then, and then you, uh, you're dependable. And I also try to post reviews quickly uh, because a lot of these shows have run only for a couple of weeks. So if it is to help them uh, get more audiences for their later performances, uh, it needs to be reviewed quickly. And they really appreciate that if you get a review up the next day. Well, in, in addition, in addition to the theater stuff that you've written for us, as Eric mentioned, you started as a as a music writer for us, and one of the features that you wrote quite regularly was the indie roundup. Yeah, and I'm still doing that, although a little bit less uh, less frequently, but I'm still doing that pretty uh, pretty regularly. Well, I know back at the end of November, on November 21st, in fact, your indie roundup included uh, a review, a treatment of Kenny Vance and the Planotones' uh, new album, Countdown to Love. 
And I'm actually delighted to say that Kenny Vance is now on the phone with us right now. Uh, welcome to the show, Kenny. Hey, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Yeah, we uh, can hear you. A little, little quiet, but we've, we've got you. Hello? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Okay, good. Uh, it's Kenny. Hi, Kenny. Hi, welcome to the show. Can you hear us? Yes, I can. I'm actually driving... Uh, back from a job, uh, and I'm on the Jersey Turnpike. Ah, so you're, you're committing a misdemeanor of some sort. No, no, I have an earphone. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's drama in real life as we span the nation. Well, considering that you're driving, uh, we can hear you pretty well. Uh, this is John here, uh, John Sobel. I wrote that uh, review that, uh, that um, was posted a couple months ago. Go well, ahead, John. Uh, we're, we are having John uh, because he did such an excellent job on Kenny's album and enjoyed it and uh, was so perspicacious in his review. So we thought it would be a great idea to have John basically do the interview with Kenny and talk about his career and where he is now and how he got there. And as I understand, the career goes all the way back to Jay and the Americans. Well, right now I'm on the Jersey Turnpike. Yeah. <laughs> um, Metaphorically going. Okay. Uh, so, so yeah, Kenny, um, Jay and the Americans. Uh, that 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 was was that actually how you got your start, or did you do music before that? Well, Jay and the Americans for me, I basically started that group with another guy, uh, but that, I was about eighteen when I did that. It was a different. Uh, it was it was the end of Tin Pan Alley basically, uh, at the Brill Building. Right. And uh, which you know of course was the the heyday in the 30s and 40s, and now we're basically uh, talking about people like uh, well Phil Spector and Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich and Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil and uh, Carol King and Jerry Goffin. Yeah, so the songs you did then were really kind of the last gasp of the Tin Pan Alley uh, era. Exactly. You know, Burt Backrack and Hal David, actually, Burt Backrack and Bob Hilliard, before he started writing with, uh, uh-huh. with Hal David. But but in when I was about 15, I basically started a group called the Harbolites. And we uh, came by subway into the Manhattan, and there was a a famous, three famous buildings that you would go to and try to audition for the record companies in these buildings. Now, uh, it was a time when if you had a hundred bucks, you could conceivably make a record that would sell a million copies. Wow, times have really changed. And um, we, you know, because record labels like Columbia and Capital and RCA didn't really want to put this kind of music uh, on their labels. You know, they had uh, a different different uh, artists on their label. I guess people like Patty Page and uh, uh, Pat Boone. Pat, no, no, no. Well, I'm well. I'm talking about people that that weren't rock. Right. Pat Boone, you know, was at least... Uh, Ostensibly rock. Right, exactly. And actually, he made a couple of good records over the years. Um, I know people put him down. 
I actually have Pat Boone's latest record in my uh, listening pile right now. <laughs> He's still putting them out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he made a record called, I think it was called Moody River, which is really a great record. Mm. It's kind of after he did all of those covers. Right. But anyway, uh, I'm trying to give you like a broad stroke of, of what it was like in those days. So as, as kids, we would hear, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, we would hear these songs that a guy named Alan Freed would play on the radio. And uh, he was a guy that uh, was credited with coining the term rock and roll. Right. And Alan Freed actually ran the first ever rock and roll show at the Brooklyn Paramount Theater in around, like, 56, with Fats Domino, Jerry Lee Lewis, Chuck Berry, the Heartbeats, uh, the Penguins, uh, the Dubs, groups like that. Uh, I don't know if you guys... Yeah, sure. uh, Okay, so, and uh, as kids, you know, we all went there, and what we tried to do after that was what we, we, of course, wanted to make our own records, so we tried to imitate songs, and we would go down in the subway, you know, because they had a great echo chamber there, and... um, you know, if you had four guys, it would sound like eight. And we would try to imitate songs that we heard on his show. And by the time I was 15, we actually had made up a couple of songs of our own. And we took the subway in, and there were three buildings. The Brill Building, 1619 Broadway, 1697 Broadway, which is now the Ed Sullivan Theater Building, where David Letterman does the show and 1650 Broadway. And all of these buildings had fly-by-night record companies. Like I said before, for 100 bucks, you could, you know, you would take a group off the street and you would hire an arranger, a guy named Teacher Wilshire, and they would bring in three or four guys from Birdland and they would cut these records. And what was interesting about it is that these guys were phenomenal jazz players. So, because in those days there was no such thing as a rock and roll musician. I mean, the Rolling Stones or the Beatles or, you know, they hadn't they hadn't come on the scene yet. So, if you wanted to make a record, you basically wrote the song a cappella and you came in and they would hire these guys from Birdland. That's why you hear on a lot of the 50s records you hear these amazing saxophone solos, and they're basically bebop solos. Because, uh, to me, I like to call that music, people trivialize that music. You know, like, like for example, the station FUV in New York? Yeah, sure. You know, they play great stuff, and they have programs like called Morning Becomes Eclectic, but for some reason they never play this stuff. And it's kind of a pet peeve of mine thinking that, well, they really should because these records have a sort of like a bad rap because of grief or something like that. But if you really took the time out to listen to them, they're really unbelievable uh, jazz records. And um, with with these sort of um, naive songs. Yeah, I like, to, I like to call it teenage jazz. Huh? That's, but that's, that's just that's just me. 
<laughs> and uh, anyway, um, what happened was we made a couple of records, and um, we went on a couple of local TV shows. Alan Freed had a TV show on Channel 5, which was then called Dumont, and also on Channel 13, there was a guy named Clay Cole. And we went on these shows, and you lip sync, you know, to your record. And I met a guy that was singing with a group called The Mystics that had a, a song called Hushabye. And we formed this group, and we wound up having an audition with the two uh, most successful independent record producers in the world, who were Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. They wrote Hound Dog, Yakety Yak, Charlie Brown, Jailhouse. Yeah, people people know them as people know them as classic songwriters, but uh, I didn't even realize that they were um, that they were producing. Well, they produced they produced uh, Big Mama Thornton's version of Hound Dog uh-huh. before Elvis, and they produced um, uh, Wilbert Harrison's version of Kansas City. They produced uh, a whole bunch of blues performers that were trying to cross over, like Big Mama Thornton. I'm not that familiar with their earliest work, but when they came to New York, before they came to New York, they produced the Robins, mm. and the Robins did Riot and Cell Block Number no. Nine, right? And they also did uh, 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 Smokey Joe's Cafe, which was a bean house out in L.A. As you know, there was a hit Broadway show called Smokey Joe's Cafe about what seven or eight years ago, right? And so they was, came to New York, and they brought some of the Robins with them, and they changed the name to the Coasters. And ah. as you know, they recorded Yakety Yak, Charlie Brown, Searchin', right. uh, Along Came Jones, Little Egypt, these amazing kind of uh, satires about social commentaries about, you know, a certain group of people. And... Uh, um, they not only wrote all of the songs, they were the producers. And on those records were, uh, the sax player was King Curtis. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then they started uh, working for Jerry Lieber, uh, Jer- Jerry Wexler and Ahmed Erdogan at Atlantic, and they started to produce the the, um, the Drifters. And they produced There Goes My Baby with Benny King singing lead for the Drifters. And right. Then, uh, save the last dance for me. And you, you, you do a cover of "There Goes My Baby" on your new CD. I do. Yeah, it's different. It's very different. It's, very, it's a shuffle. We yeah. It's a shuffle, but on, in those days, the, what they did, I think they had like a Latin tinged beat to it. Yes. I've so sort of... you know, basically, uh, we auditioned for them, and they were so hot as producers that United Artists had given them a, a independent record deal, and they start, started recording us, and we had hits. And the first hit was in ni- the end of 1961, which is like, to me, it seems like yesterday, but it's, you know, like a, a half a century ago. And um, we recorded She Cried, which became top five, and then we recorded a song called Only in America, and then a song called uh, Come a Little Bit Closer in 1964, 1965, Let's Lock the Door, 1966, Caramia, and um, Some Enchanted Evening. Caramia was a huge, you know, hit, and um, 
Then in 68, uh, I got involved with these two guys that knocked on our door once, and they, a guy named Donald Fagan and Walter Becker. And they became uh, a part of the last incarnation of Jane American, actually playing on a couple of our last hits. And we recorded um, uh, This Magic Moment in 69, and then Walking in the Rain in 70. And by 70, Donald and Walter had wound up, wound up going out to the West Coast uh, and made the Can't Buy a Thrill album. And before that, I had produced an album, several albums, with them that we called Becker and Fagan. Huh. And have subsequently come out as bootlegs and, and uh, Becker and Fagan in the early years. So you've gotten us up into the 70s now, which is uh, the time when doo-wop, start, there started to be a... Uh, uh, nostalgia craze for for music of the fifties, with Happy Days and all that. Exactly, but I, I had left Jane the, Ameri- Jane the Americans, and I I recorded a song with Bill Dorn uh, for Atlantic Records called uh, "Looking for an Echo," and uh, it's taken about twenty years for it to become a cult classic in that uh, in that particular genre of yeah, yeah. radio. But I wound up. Because of that record, I wound up um, being called out to California where they were getting ready to do a movie called American Hot Wax, which was the Alan Freed story. Right. So It was, sli- it was just uh, slightly fictionalized. Slightly. But you know what I think? And looking back at it now, I feel proud of it because we really did capture the feeling that was going on at that time. And I know uh, for a fact that there are many people who... Know, look at that and just uh, you know forget about the inaccuracies. I mean, all movies are difficult to make, and there are filled with many inaccuracies. But but this one really did capture the spirit of that time. And if you want to know what it was like at the Brooklyn at the Brooklyn Paramount Theater in 1958, check out American Hotline. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, you know, I don't know. I'm I'm rambling on, but after that, I wound up doing. Um, and that that movie, I formed a group called the Planetone. Right, which is uh, which is a group that you revived and uh, you have kept going now for for quite some years. It's hard to believe, but it's fifteen years. Yeah, it's hard to believe. I started it when I was already getting old, and it was in '92, <laughs> and we're going stronger than ever now. Well, that's so, what I was going to ask you about next, uh, because uh, you've got a new CD out, uh, which kind of really sticks to the. Uh, the the duop feel and the duop grooves, uh, but you've also got uh, a couple of surprising song choices on there, and uh, it's a really interesting album and a really a good sounding album that uh, it doesn't sound like an oldies collection. It's all new recordings uh, of you and your group. Neo duop. <laughs> Neo duop. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. And you know, it, it, I, I I don't know. You know, if people really give it a, a real listen. They'll, they'll realize, you know, that unfortunately this genre is looked over. It's true. Yes, over. It's trivialized. It struck me because I know you also tour to t- take the band on the road as well, right? Well, you know, we're, it, it's an amazing thing. I mean, I don't know why, but it just seems like there's a tremendous uh, need for this. And the people who love this music, they come out in droves 
in uh, many cities across the United States. And um, we play to packed houses all over the United States. It's mind-blowing. And, you know, I think that when we do these songs, we kind of transport the people back to that time. And in, in doing so, you know, they wind up, you know, transporting us back to that time. Yeah, that, that's got to be a nicer experience than watching one of those uh, public television uh, doo-wop extravaganzas where they bring out all these acts and they do one song each. Well, you know, we were on that show, and, and the thing is this, we do play with a lot of those people, and these are people that had hits 40 and 50 years ago. Sure. And unfortunately, most of them really aren't, you know, really as good as they were then. And if people took the time to listen to some of these records that were made then, like Jimmy Beaumont and the Skyliner, uh, This I Swear and Since I Don't Have You and Pookie Hudson and the Spaniels, Peace of Mind, and the Dubs featuring Richard Blandon, Could This Be Magic, and, and the Dells, Oh, What a Night. I mean... Outstanding vocals, everyone. Outstanding, outstanding singers. And, you know, I don't think it was a genre where people, you know, paid that much attention to the lyrics, but certainly, you know, the lyrics were, you know, about love and about things, but um, it seems to me that that those records conveyed a feeling that you don't really, it, it, today's stuff, it's really not about that, it's about something else, and I'm not putting it down, what they do today, and which is, which, which I have a lot of uh, respect for, but I just think the fact that uh, this music that we're discussing now, you know, does have a credibility. It's much more musical. It's, it's very melody-focused. Uh, melody and vocals. Right. And, uh, and it, harmony. And harmonies, big, um, big uh, four-part harmonies. You know, and, uh, you know, if I'm talking too much, tell me, but I, I just, it, it brought up something else, you know, and it, it made me realize that in those days, you know, when I make the records now, the CDs now, we're making them basically on a computer. Of course, many of the elements are live, but you have sound tools and you can do all kinds of things with them. In the old days, an engineer, he understood microphones, and he understood how to mic a room because you only, it was like, you know, taking a photograph. It was like Ouija taking a photograph or, you know, some... You know, you had one chance to capture what was going on in that room because yeah. you only—it was mono. They talk about hearing the room in, in some of those old recordings, and and uh, exactly. you can tell what they mean. You can hear the room in those recordings. Well, and John Hammond talked about that that mu the recording of music was never the same when they went from mono to stereo. So, I mean, that's how far back he goes in his perception of when it changed. You know, you're talking about. Now going back to the the fifties. Well, we did it. We when we did it. <laughs> it was stereo. You know, you had two tracks, but you still. I mean, you had to put the lead vocal on one track, and just about everything else on the other tracks track. And then what happened is, you know, we started to learn some tricks so you could run a a mono machine next to it and hopefully be able to sync it up and add another element. 
Kenny, excuse me one second. I'm just looking at the time, and we're going to go off live. We'll be able to keep talking to you for for the recorded version for podcast and, and streaming, so absolutely want to keep talking to you. But before we go off the air, I wanted you uh, to make sure that we let people know how they can get a hold of you. Do you have a website? You know, How can they find out where you're playing and all that kind of thing? We want people to be able to access you and your music. Okay. Uh, that'd be great. Um, uh it's KennyVance.com. Well, that's simple enough. Yeah, just the way it sounds. And the new CD is called Countdown to Love. Right. Okay. Resume. Resume. Sorry to sorry to interrupt. Okay. Just didn't want no didn't want to leave that out. It's all about the plugs. Okay. Okay. So uh, so all right. Now my my uh, the, the, what I was thinking about uh, as you were talking about uh, the other groups is that uh, a lot of those groups are still out there doing the oldies shows and the nostalgia shows and the cruises, um, but they're not making records uh, in general. No, they're not. And uh, I I jumped on the chance to get a copy of yours just because I love this this style of music, and I always have, Uh, but generally you listen to the same things over and over and over again if you put on an oldies station, if you're lucky enough to have an oldies station in in your town. Right. Which uh, in New York we didn't for a while. I think the satellite radios and and you guys, you know. Yeah, satellite you can still get it. Music Choice you can still get it. Uh, you guys are like the hope for for the you know for the future because you're you sound like a young guy and 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 uh, you know you like it so so you know you it's your responsibility to you know, yeah it to your friends. Yeah, well I, I actually had a chance to play in a in a duet band for a little while. To back up a band on Long Island, it was an obscure band. It wasn't anybody famous, uh, but it was four singers, and I played the bass in the band for a few gigs. And I discovered that at that time in the in the 90s, there was a big scene on Long Island. Yes, there, there was. Still is. Yeah, we played uh, a couple of gigs, and one of them was a festival, and all these bands came. There were 15 bands, and they were all from Long Island. Not, not even New York State, just all from Long Island. I don't know if it's still as big now, but uh, I remember that, that's what really uh, really got me listening to the music more than, than just hearing oldies radio. Right, right. So uh, it's, it's, um, it's quite something. Uh, the, the CD really sounds good, and you've got some, perform- some, uh, some, some songs that are a little uh, un- unexpected, like uh, you mentioned Burt Bacharach and Hal David before, and you've got a version of Anyone Who Had a Heart on here, which is really beautiful, and it's not, uh, it's, it sounds like you and your band, uh, but it's definitely not a typical doo-wop song. Did you just want to do that because you love yeah. the, the back rack songs? I just, you know, it was sort of like when I was thinking about things to do, uh, you know, Burt Backrack was a very big part of, of uh, Tin Pan Alley, you know, the last, the last part of Tin Pan Alley in those days, and he would come around and play songs for us, and I always loved anyone who had a heart, and since, you know, I'm basically paying for the record myself, I figured I could do whatever I want. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And you've got a version of Louie Louie, which is uh, kind of the flip side of uh, the, the beautiful type of songwriting uh, that, that Backrack and, and how David well, Louis did. Louie Louie, you know, uh, uh, written by Richard Berry. Richard Berry, by the way, is the lead vocalist on Riot and Cell Block Number 9 by The Robin. Uh-huh. And, um... Richard Berry said that, not to me, but he said, I read the book Louie Louie by um, Dave Marsh. Mm-hmm. 
you know, there's a whole book on it, on Louis Louis. Yeah, I believe it. And uh, I read in there that um, when I was recording it, I wanted to just check it out. And it's a phenomenal, uh, really interesting um, a journey that the song has had. It was rec- uh, Chuck Berry recorded a song called Havana Moon. It's one of the flip sides of one of his first recordings. Mm-hmm. And it's a really a terrific recording. It's worth checking out. And Richard Berry said that he always wanted to write a song as great as Havana Moon. And one night when he was playing with his band, there was a Latin group that opened up for him. And the and the bass on the uh, you know through the floor he heard and the band kind of kicked in, and um, he wrote you know. Louis Louis, and uh, his original recording of it was unsuccessful. But a group up in uh, Washington State called the Whalers, many years later, maybe eight years later, got a hold of it, and it became like a, a, a dance craze in the uh, Pacific Northwest. And then a bunch of kids called the Kingsmen, just like a garage band, one of the first garage bands. Yeah, that's the group that's really known for doing the song. They they basically copied the, the Whalers version note for note, and the solo, the guitar solo that's on my record is the same solo played by Johnny Gale, is the same solo that's on the Whalers record, and it's the same solo that's on the Kingsmen record. And the Kingsman's record, which was, you know, really a very poor recording, wound up selling 10 million copies. So then I think, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people have recorded Louie Louie. But yeah. I think I hold the distinction of probably being the last one to record. <laughs> Not for long, I bet. Uh, there's, there's there's probably 100 bands all over the country playing that song this very night on a, in, a, in a bar somewhere. Well, Kenny Vance is a founding member of the seminal doo-wop group Jay and the Americans. It has been a real pleasure to hear from you tonight, Kenny. Well, appreciate great. you coming on the show. Okay, I really enjoyed it, and um, you know, you guys uh, uh, got to keep keep uh, everybody's minds open. Yeah, that's our job. That's our job. We're writers. Okay. <laughs> that's right. And you can uh, you can find out more about uh, Kenny at uh, kennyvance.com. His latest album is called um, Countdown called to Love. Countdown to Love, which is actually a song on the album written by Kenny. Uh, right. You can also get the album at oldies.com. That's uh, an easy way to get it. Uh, but for information about Kenny and, uh, and what he's up to, just kennyvance.com. Great. Well, thank you to Sal Marinello early tonight and to John Sobel just now. Uh, you can find out more about John at johnsobel.com. That's S-O-B-E-L, uh, J-O-N-S-O-B-E-L.com, or at stagemage.com. And, of course, uh, thanks to, to Kenny Vance, as I've already mentioned, for taking the time tonight, and also to Lisa and Eric for co-hosting the show tonight. Uh, listen for Sal Marinello on Fox Sports Radio XM Channel 142 Thursday morning at 8.20 Eastern Time and later on for the West Coast. 
This has been BC Radio Live. We broadcast live every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, so be sure to visit blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio to type your questions and comments in the chat room and watch the live video feed. If you missed the live broadcast, audio archives are available online, or you can subscribe to the podcast and have BC Radio Live delivered to you each week. Find out more about BC Radio Live and all of the other shows on the BC Radio Network at blogcritics.org slash bcradio. Thanks for listening.